0: We'll hear argument next in case 13935, Wellness International Network versus Sharif. Ms. Stagey?
1: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, Stern v. Marshall held that a bankruptcy judge may, consistent with Article 3, enter judgment in an action that stems from the bankruptcy itself. The claim at issue in this case meets that test. Wellness asked the bankruptcy court to decide the first and most fundamental question that arises in every bankruptcy case. What property became part of the debtor Sharif's bankruptcy estate under Bankruptcy Code Section 541 on the day Mr. Sharif filed for bankruptcy? As this Court recognized over 100 years ago in Mueller v. Nugent, it is essential that bankruptcy judges have that authority. As long as there have been bankruptcy laws, there have been debtors like Mr. Sharif who devise creative ways to keep property in their own possession and out of the hands of their trustees and creditors. Here, Mr. Sharif's case. Well, we've already
2: held that a fraudulent conveyance against a non-creditor is an Article three violation. is a stern claim, essentially. Yes, sure. Or a non-stern claim. So uh, why isn't this the same thing?
1: Because this action is a I I mean,
2: it's not the same thing because he actually possesses this trust. It's in his name as trustee. Yes. So it's a little bit — it's a lot different, but
1: — Yes, but the allegations of the complaint were that Mr. Sharif owned the property, and to the extent the trust existed, it should be ignored by virtue of the way he well, handled the trust. But that's the
2: same in a fraudulent conveyance. It was his property, and he was just trying to deny — his other
1: creditors the benefit of that money. So it's but, not quite that. Well, it's different, Your Honor, because in a fraudulent transfer claim, the debtor actually passes title over to someone under the definition of 548. or the But here
2: um, he's claiming that the beneficiary has title.
1: Yes, but that's the very dispute that the Court was asked to decide. Under Thompson v. Magnolia Petroleum, The issue is not what the debtor claims his title is, but whether he has actual possession. And so here, the assets what we have here are the condominium that he lives in, and he's lived in for 20 years, a pharmacy business, he's a pharmacist, that he's been operating for many years and that in the past he had reported as his business on his personal tax return. We have his own personal retirement account that somehow inexplicably ended up in the mother's grantor trust. And then we have bank accounts that he owned. And so the allegations of the complaint were that he really owned this. And this charade that he put up in front of the bankruptcy court of saying this is owned in a trust, That was the dispute the Court had to consider, in a way, I think, to think of it as differently from a fraudulent transfer action, where you're going against a true third party to whom title has passed. That chosen action, the intangible right to sue on the fraudulent transfer claim, or, as in Stern, the right to bring the breach of of contract or tort claim, in these other cases, that asset, the right to sue – exists in the estate at the time of its creation.
2: The,
3: ben- who, the who is the beneficiary of this trust? His sister, right? Well, that's That's what's claimed.
1: That's what's claimed, yes.
3: And and so what would be the effect of a declaration by the bankruptcy court that uh that uh respondent was the alter ego that it was actually his property. What the sister would the sister be bound by that judgment? Would the sister have to appear in the bankruptcy court as if she were a creditor?
1: Well, yes, she would be bound, because if we accept their characterization, the trustee, through his litigation conduct, binds the beneficiary under well-established Illinois law, the law of, of, it's just basic trust law. But more importantly, she did appear in this action. She appeared through counsel. She, too, was subpoenaed. She, too, failed to produce the trust documents in response to requests. She was given notice of the case as a creditor um, and could have filed a claim. And there was a safety valve for her, and she's, in fact, exercised her ability to to have that safety valve. She could have filed a proof of claim in the case. Would
2: Would the court, the bankruptcy court, have had the power to notify her or to subpoena her to come in as a party?
1: Yes, because if, if she was a necessary party to the action, the normal rules of federal civil procedure apply through the bankruptcy rules, and she would have been required to be brought in. She's not a necessary party to the construct to they created. It, right. they, they created this construct of this trust.
4: So he's going to write about the basic facts. Creditor wants some money from debtor who's in bankruptcy. Creditor says, I look at your list of assets. It seems to me something's missing. I have a piece of paper here that you filed one year ago at the bank, which says you have $5 million more. Where's that on the list? He thinks about it, and he says, oh, yeah, there was $5 more, but that wasn't mine. That belonged to Saudi Arabia, or that belonged to my cousin, or, and so they say, let's prove it. And that's what we're at issue. That's what's at issue. That's Can right. the bankruptcy court? It happens here that the claim is not Saudi Arabia. The claim is not my cousin. The claim is that the five million dollars was a living trust of which there seems to be very little record, uh, 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 which belonged to his mother. But in principle, it's no different, is it? In your view?
1: No, that, that's exactly what we have. A simple we claim. Have we have we'll hear
4: from the other side, which will say it's very different.
1: But, and that is the basis of bankruptcy. If we, if we think about what bankruptcy is and what it historically always has been, it's been about the in-rem jurisdiction of the court to take control of the debtor's property. And this case really is easy because the debtor is in possession of the property. The nature of this property, he's personally- Is that the on. only
5: basis for distinguishing Stern?
1: No, it's not, Your Honor. There's a number of- What things. else? Okay. This is decided as a matter of federal law. Section 541 determines what comes into the estate and what doesn't. It's Well, oh,
5: whether there's a trust or not is not a question of federal law, is it?
1: But the question of whether something belongs to the bankruptcy estate is a federal question, even if state law informs the answer. This Court's precedent well, no, other, under other statutes, it's Law v. Siegel last year. It's and a paper. question
5: of federal law, even if state law provides the answer? I, I don't
1: well, know that Yes, Your Honor, is. and that's, the Court has interpreted federal statutes dealing with property rights, the Paulson, the- And that t- wasn't
5: the case in Stern?
1: It was not the case in Stern. Well, the well, claim well, there was — Likewise
5: there. What was in the estate is a question of federal law, even if state law provided the answer.
1: The difference here would be, if there had been a dispute between the debtor in Stern and her bankruptcy trustee over who got the right to go sue Pierce, the, the son-in-law, that would have been this case. That would have been the 541 question. The chosen action is what exists in the estate — at the time of its creation. And so that chose of action, when you go out and you seek to go liquidate that, bring the lawsuit, that's the augmenting type claim that the court has talked about it in its precedent in Stern and in Northern Pipeline.
3: Suppose that Illinois law, suppose Illinois law governs the, this, uh, the issue of the trust, and uh, suppose Illinois law says that when a, uh, uh, when it is held, that um, the trustee is — that the trust is the trustee's alter ego, that the property does not become the pro- — that the, 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 ma- the, the property at issue does not become the property of the trustee until there's a judicial declaration that that, that, that occurs.
1: Well, I don't think that changes the analysis, because ultimately — In a bankruptcy case, if you're going to have a — So that would be a
3: question of of the status of this under Illinois law, not under federal law, right?
1: It would inform the decision, but ultimately, whether the property comes into the estate or not is determined under Section 541. And so the the Court of Appeals, who have addressed this issue, and we list a number of those cases in um, the third footnote in our brief, all are very uniform. They are looking to state law in a variety of different contexts, to figure out what the debtors rights are in the property because that's the butner decision of this court but ultimately when you make that final determination that it is property of the estate you look to 541 and congress would have intended that disputes over trusts be part of that 541 determination by its inclusion of section 541d which talks about what title the debtor holds, whether it's legal title or equitable title, which is directly, you know, driven toward trust because that's when you have a division of title. And so it was intended that Federal law would cover that. I mean, I also think that, um, you know, um, a key difference between this and Stern in the form of claim that we have here is this is being brought against the debtor. This isn't being brought against a third party who's been hauled into bankruptcy court against their will. The debtor has chosen to file a bankruptcy knowing by virtue of the statute that he or she will be required to turn over their property to the bankruptcy trustee, that there may be disputes over that. And there can be legitimate disputes. It doesn't necessarily just have to be a dishonest debtor like we would contend we have here. And that they're going to be in front of the bankruptcy judge in the first instance having those disputes determined. It's part of the Federal scheme exactly what bankruptcy is supposed to accomplish, which is to get all of the debtor's property Put into the bankruptcy estate for distribution to creditors. That's the central key point of every bankruptcy case. And if you don't do that, you lose your discharge like Mr. Sharif. It really is, this action really is the flip side of the denial of his discharge, which no one disputes the bankruptcy judge had the authority to decide. She couldn't decide if he should receive a discharge if we didn't know what it was he was supposed to be doing in the case in terms of the property that he had, and the two claims really overlap each other; they're the flip side of each other. That's why I think this is different than a cause of action against a third party, such as you had in Stern or Northern Pipeline or um, Grand Financiera and the like.
2: Consent question completely. Sure. Basically, the argument that the um, S.G. and the uh, of you in the SG is that you need a- express consent, or I guess the other side saying you need express consent, and they didn't give cons- express consent. How do you get around that?
1: Well, Your Honour, we think that you don't need it. the court has held in role that implied consent is permissible. The argument is based upon the bankruptcy rule, bankruptcy rule 7012, and if you look at section 157C. It uses the term express consent and then just the term consent. In connection with Section 157C2, which deals with the consent of a litigant um, to proceed to judgment on a non-Core Stern claim, it uses the word consent. So if we assume Congress meant to require express consent in 157E, dealing with consenting to a jury trial right, they must not have required express consent. And then we have a rule that's going beyond what the statute provides. That's exactly the situation in rollout. We, we don't, don't have to con-
5: reach both these questions if we find one of them in, in your favor, do we?
1: That's correct. If you don't find it to be a stern claim, then consent would Which be.
5: Which one is the better one? Which is the prettier question? Or, 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 or the one that, that, that you think has more real-world effect
1: well I think the first question has real world effect in the sense that if the court were to take away from bankruptcy judges the power to litigate disputes with the debtor over what they possess comes in or out of the bankruptcy estate you'd see a sea change in how cases were handled because that's the basic dispute you're going to have with the debtor you're going to have three disputes with the debtor it's going e- to be- even if
4: consent were sufficient to confer a jurisdiction that's that's uh, maybe just to uh, continue justice Scalia's question mm-hmm. Are the bankruptcy courts more confused by question
5: one or question two?
1: (laughs) I think there's a lot of confusion out there, Your Honor, and I think that certainly people are also concerned about the consent question, because the situation that you have today is that both parties could consent and the bankruptcy judge could enter a judgment, and then the party who loses can turn around and say, well, there's a question about whether I really consented or not or whether it was appropriate. So both are, are, are problems for the courts right now.
6: Can I ask, uh, you, you said uh, implied consent should be uh, sufficient. How would you go about implying consent? When would there be implied consent? On the basis of what?
1: Well, I think you would have implied consent where you have here, you have a debtor who moved for summary judgment. He asked the bankruptcy judge to enter judgment in his behalf. He never sought withdrawal of the reference. He never sought to ask the district court to take this matter away from him. Uh, we have, I think, the act of filing a bankruptcy puts you in front of the bankruptcy judge for at least the basic administration of estate, property of the estate determinations. But I would, would submit for all matters involving the debtor, because they all really do relate to that. It's basically property of the estate determinations, whether property can be claimed as exempt and whether the debtor gets the discharge. That's what will involve 99 percent of litigation with the debtor. You've said,
6: I think, that the consent has to be knowing and intelligent. Is there something that has to be told to the debtor to make the consent
1: knowing and intelligent? Congress didn't require that here in Section 157. And, you know, it's a maxim of the law that knowledge, you know, lack of knowledge of the law is no excuse. The statute puts you on notice that there is a list of proceedings, the core proceedings, that are like the old summary proceedings under the Bankruptcy Act, that the bankruptcy judge can decide to final judgment without the consent of the parties. And the statute also puts you on notice that if you don't agree with that, you can ask the bankruptcy judge to make a determination. You can ask the district court judge to make a determination. There there is a
2: problem, however, here, and that problem is that Stern wasn't decided until the appeal. On rebuttal, I want to talk about the American College's, uh, appellate waiver argument.
1: Yes, Your Honor. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Counsel.
0: Mr. Gannon?
7: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, we agree with petitioners on both questions presented. With respect to the first question, we don't think this is like a stern claim for the two reasons that have already been discussed. That is, that the question of whether something is property of the estate under Section 541 stems from bankruptcy itself.
2: But that's too broad an answer, because that would be true of fraudulent conveyances.
7: Well, And and it also does not involve an attempt to augment the estate. We're talking about a determination about —
2: How about a, a simpler rule? If you have legal title to something, well, you, if you possess it physically or you have legal title to it, then the bankruptcy court can determine.
7: Well, but I, th- I think and he has,
2: the trustee had legal title. He's the just trustee had
7: bare legal title and that there's we think an that equitable
2: requirement to hold it for someone else.
7: And and under five forty one D, if it is true that the trustee only only holds bare legal title and then ultimately the trust is not looked through because it's found not to exist or because it's found to be the alter ego of the trustee, then um, the then the equitable interest would not have come into yeah, the, to 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 the estate. Get away from and so that's the, true. I am
2: trying to get away from the augmentation argument because it's really difficult to apply in a case like this. Anything that's in the estate augments it, or anything that comes Well, this I, I, I don't
7: think that that's true. I think that when the Court in Stern and Grand Financiera and Northern Pipeline was talking about the difference between questions that are, that stem from the uh, bankruptcy itself and are integral to the restructuring of the debtor-creditor relationship, well, then, they were then, talking about um, the, the baseline that you have there with the estate Tell me the why property. my
2: rule is not simpler.
7: Well, I think if that...
2: You, if you physically possess it at the time you declare bankruptcy or you have legal title to it. I think then that the bankruptcy then it's not a Stern claim.
7: I, I suppose that that, that, that it, what this is fainting towards is the system that the parties have talked about uh, that developed under the 1898 Act that ended up being a relatively reticulated system, as described in the Towel Scott Kitzmiller case, in which there are multiple categories in which the bankruptcy court would have jurisdiction to make these determinations. And we agree with petitioners that on facts like these, where there was possession of the property, which we think indisputably the trustee had possession of the trust assets here, and that would be enough to give the bankruptcy judge to the uh, jurisdiction or the referee under the 1898 Act cases jurisdiction to determine who had title. And, and, and if, if, said if we if would look to history. Pardon? In Stern, we said we would look to history. Yeah, portions of the Stern opinion looked to history, but it did not indicate that the historical precedents for this were going to be dispositive, and we don't think that — that the rationale of Stern, Grand Financiera, and Northern Pipeline requires that as an Article 3 matter, nor does the statute here, because the statutory definition of, of, property of the estate refers to property wherever located and by whomever held. It still ultimately has to be property of the debtor, and so if you're going to say that if it's, if it's, if the debtor holds title to the property, that is the ultimate determination. So and you to, say that let's that's go not Let's the a
2: hypothetical. The sister holds title. But, you're saying that it belonged to him. Well, I, that she holds legal title, but in fact, she, it, it's really his money.
7: Well, I, I think, it, I think it would, if, if she held legal title and the property had already been transferred to her and that's what the bankruptcy judge determined, then it wouldn't be property of the estate. Um, and but we don't know the answer to the question of who holds title until the so-called stern claim or non-stern claim has already been decided. And so I think that that's the trouble with assuming that the answer to the title question or the ownership question, because that is the answer to the property of the estate question, we can't we can't wait to know the, the merits determination before we know whether it's a stern claim, I think, is, is the problem with approaching it that way. But it, it is sensible to say that the question of whether something was property of the estate on day one such that it was the debtor's property, because that's the determination here, that that is not like a stern claim. It's not like a fraudulent conveyance or avoidable transfer, where you're attempting to go out after the bankruptcy has already been initiated and trying to l- reduce a chosen action um, to judgment and liquidate it and therefore increase the size of the estate after the fact.
0: Counsel, on the consent question, is under your theory, is there anything wrong with Congress Adding a proviso to every federal <coughs> contract, saying the contractor hereby agrees to waive any Article Three objections to having disputes with the government resolved by something we'll call the congressional courts, where the uh, 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 individuals serve for three years, um, uh, and Congress has a lot more sway over their uh, decisions.
8: Well, I
7: suspect, yes, um, if for no other reason than be, I mean, yes, not even yes, I suspect. Yes, why? I, I forget yes, the question. If for no other reason than be. Yeah, yes, it's okay. Yes, that that would be a problem. Um, I'm sorry, well, that okay. that, 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 would, that would not be permissible. I, I, I've forgotten the question. Um, but the reason why this would not. I
0: thought it was an unforgettable this, question. I don't know. <laughs>
7: I promise you I won't forget it now. Yes. Uh, but, uh, yes, we have no bananas. The reason, the, the reason why this would be a problem um, is, is because of the structural concerns that you raised there, which we don't think are present here. When you said that those were, were congressional courts that would be more subject to supervision by Congress, we do not think that that describes the bankruptcy system. We think the bankruptcy system is akin to the magistrate judge system, where this Court has repeatedly recognized that the structural concerns that were at issue in Shore were not sufficient to create a problem, you, you there are problem. two things here. There is both the, the, the consent of the parties, but also adequate judicial control, both in the aggregate over bankruptcy judges who are appointed by and removable by Article Three judges, and also in every individual case because they don't get any bankruptcy cases. There's
0: judicial control in the sense that you have deferential appellate review um, uh, and, and whatnot, but it still takes out of the federal courts our. Constitutional birthright to decide cases and controversies under Article Three, and, and I it's think, hard for me to see uh, how but I sort think, of vague, vague notions of oh well, the judges are involved there somewhere.
7: But I, I don't think that this is vague. We're talking about something different from just having um, appellate review after the fact. We're talking here about supervision of the bankruptcy judges just like magistrate judges by article 3 judges they're appointed by removed by them they don't ever get a case unless the court agrees to give it to them and that seems to me the principal difference between your hypothetical congressional court scheme which is that the parties are all not even making a voluntary choice because congress is deeming them to have made the choice and then also no court is able to say i do not want the transfer to happen and both of those things are not true here because the parties are able to make the choice and the courts are able to withdraw the reference the parties are always able to ask for the courts to to withdraw the reference. This makes it just like the bankruptcy system with respect to whether it's a consentable um, constitutional violation. And so we don't think that this is like subject matter jurisdiction. And the Court in Stern said that, that the division of authority between bankruptcy Mm -hmm. judges and district court judges in 157 is not a question of subject matter jurisdiction. And we think that is why it's one that's waivable. Can can you go back
4: to your experience Mm -hmm. in your office? Uh, I just want to know it seems to me by memory but I'm not positive it is not totally unusual uh, and we do have the power to give two affirmative answers where either answer would be sufficient that is we could answer both questions now is your uh, as a representative of of the solicitor general is your reaction the same as mine that there are cases where a court ha- where we've had two questions I, and I, we say one would be enough for the party to win, so would two, but we think it's important to answer
7: both, and we will. Um, I do believe that the Court has done that. I don't have any particular cases um, at the tip of my
5: head. Perhaps Perhaps it's made other mistakes as well, you know. Uh, 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 that's what I wondered. Is, is there, there any I,
4: reason I, that strikes you that that would be a mistake? I don't know anything in the Constitution well, uh, or I, in any uh, precedent of this Court
7: that prohibits it.
4: I, I think saying it is a mistake does not necessarily make it one.
7: I, I think that that's something that would be um, in the discretion of the Court. I do think that both of these questions are independently important. It is the case that petitioners can prevail and you could reverse the judgment of the Court of Appeals on either ground um, and would, without having to reach the other. Um, I do think that... Until the case through the low, there probably was not confusion in the bankruptcy courts about whether questions involving the definition of the property of the estate were stern claims. Um, and so, but I do think that there is confusion about that uh, just by virtue of the fact that this case is here.
3: Uh, can, I but this, can I ask you this quick question before your time runs out? If, fed, if Federal Bankruptcy Rule 7012B applies to stern claims because they're non-core uh, do you agree with the petitioner that the rule is invalid because it requires express consent and the statute does not refer to ex- express consent? I I don't think you have
7: to get to the point of saying that the rule is invalid. That's not the way the Court approached the case in Rowell, where the situation was, as my friend just said, exactly parallel. The statute did not require express consent, or it did in some places, but not in this one. And the same thing is true if you contrast 157C2 with 157E. The relevant statutory provision here does not require express consent. The Federal Rule of Civil Procedure that was applicable in Rowell did. And the Court nevertheless said that it was going to overlook the lack of an express waiver there because it found that there was sufficiently implied consent on the record. Do you
4: agree that there's implied implied consent merely by
3: filing a voluntary bankruptcy petition?
7: Well, I, I think the, the Court did I, not I thought but I heard that that's what the petitioner what, said did, When you said a, a voluntary bankruptcy petition. Yes. Uh, I, I, the Court didn't grant cert on that question we, and we do think that there's lots of other conduct here, but ultimately there's also the forfeiture after Stern itself was decided that we think would be adequate to decide that there was consent in this case
5: Mr. Gannon, I hate to uh, protract your uh, presentation here. I, I wasn't clear about what your answer to uh, Justice Breyer covered, Did, did you say there are prior cases in which we have decided two constitutional questions?
7: I said two different questions. Ah, I think what that, about two uh,
5: constitutional questions? Given that we're supposed to the, avoid the, dis, the, the uh, determination of constitutional
7: questions, I, I do realise that that is the general prudential yeah. rule that the court applies. But I think that it normally does so in the context of it would, would be upholding the statute in both regards, and therefore, I don't think that the normal concerns about uh, constitutionality rise to the same level. Not
6: so fast, mm-hmm. Um, You were saying that you you wanted to talk about the importance of both questions. I think you got the the first one out. What, in your view, is the importance of the second?
7: Well, I do think that uh, um, that the Court was not able to decide the consent question in executive benefits um, last term um, and that there is a circuit split on it. It would be very useful to know that stern claims are the sorts of things um, to which parties consent or that those claims are waivable as they are in the magistrate judge context, which we think is parallel.
2: But the government agrees uh, with the petitioner that the first question, what goes into this estate, that if we had to choose between the two, which would you say is the more important?
7: I I think that that it would be good to settle that for purposes of bankruptcy courts, but you would still have the unsettled consent question that has been kicking around ever since Stern and on which there's already a circuit split. And
5: vice versa.
0: Thank you, counsel.
8: Mr. Hacker? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, we agree with what I understand the Solicitor General's position this morning to be that, uh, the Stern Rule is relatively straightforward, forward, which is that a common law claim that seeks to augment the estate with third party property cannot be withdrawn by Congress from Article 3 jurisdiction. We also know that the alter ego claim asserted by wellness was a common law claim seeking to augment.
2: The question, your client possessed something, and he says it really belonged to someone else. Don't you have to d- decide who it belongs to if there is no clear indication of it? Two, two and there point. might be a clear one, but it still begs the question. Right. Uh, uh, two points on
8: that, Your Honor. Let me start with where this Court started um, and where the law has been for decades, if not centuries, uh, which is that the trustee of a trust possesses, if anything at all, no more than bare legal title. And so this Court said in the Hardensburg case, it said in Whiting Pools, and more import- maybe most importantly, there is no case anywhere to the contrary, that when a trust, a trustee of a trust declares personal bankruptcy, the trust assets do not become part of the estate at the commencement of the bankruptcy. So what wellness had to do was establish through its common law alter ego claim that it was to bring the uh, assets of the trust into the estate.
4: You're just saying that they didn't decide it correctly, but it's terribly easy to imagine uh, a different uh, debtor who goes into bankruptcy And he lists item one, two, three, and four. And the creditors come in and say, you know, it's awfully surprising. Four, five, six months ago, I have a similar list you gave to the National Bank. And it had ten items on it. What happened to six through ten? And the debtor replies, oh, they didn't really belong to me. Why not? Because state law gives it to somebody else. Because state law is the source of all property law. And they say no. And now we have a dispute. So forget about the trust. Maybe I don't see why that's special. This is simply a question of whether a bankruptcy judge can litigate who owns items 6 through 10. And one party says state law gives them to my cousin Mary, and the other party says state law gives them right to you. Now, if we say no and side with you on that one, what happens to the constitutional grant to Congress to make uniform laws of bankruptcy? I imagine it would still exist, but I can't imagine in what form. Now, you see a
8: pretty hostile argument, so I would like to hear your reply. I, I, uh, I, and I think the example is a good one, because I do think the trust is very important, because we do have decades of law on that. But the example is not problematic, because if, in that situation, the trustee says, I see some other bankruptcy trustee, sees, I see some other property. Uh, and the debtor says, that's not mine. I do think it's true that there wouldn't be a litig- litigable claim there unless the third party also asserted ownership to the property. But if that happened, if the third party says, that's not the debtor's, that's all mine. I've had it for years. That's my car. That's my boat. That's my house. Then I think it's absolutely clear that under that circumstance, the trustee could not extinguish the third party's rights, the bankruptcy court could not distinguish the third party's rights by itself. That's an Article three claim, a classic private rights claim, where the bankruptcy trustee, the bankruptcy court is reaching out to take the third party's property on the trustee's And property. what is the
4: example of 6 through 10 that you could find that wouldn't involve the issue you have described? Because if there is a piece of property and the debtor is saying it isn't mine, it must be somebody's, and by definition it's not the creditor's, and so it must be somebody else's, and so that other person, if there is a dispute, will say it's mine, and therefore isn't your answer to say to my prop- to my question, too bad the bankruptcy trustee cannot litigate who owns six through ten.
8: So long as the third party asserts a- Yes, yes, he can't do it. All
4: right, then we're back to where are we with bankruptcy courts? When you have taken from them the power to litigate what I would think is the most fundamental thing imaginable, how much money does the debtor have in cases where that is in dispute?
8: I don't, I don't think that's fundamental because you have, what you're talking about, I mean, this Court already crossed that bridge, I think, in Stern and saying when you're augmenting the estate with third-party property, you don't assume at the beginning of the Article three litigation that the other side has a claim. That's the whole point. The other you for say for thousands of years.
4: I got that point. For thousands of years, this has been the law. So can you think of any case? I, I find it rather interesting. I'm reading about Henry II. Who in fact created many of the laws of England. So from the time of Henry II onward, is there a case that you have found somewhere which said that the bankruptcy trustee or the bankruptcy judge cannot litigate who owns property, the bankrupt or someone else, in the state, in the estate?
8: Well, a couple of them. I'll read First it, of all, read it. all, all of the cases. Besides, besides Stern, he means. Well, Stern.
4: Stern, is, Stern is a case of a third party and a counterclaim, and uh, th- there never would have been the money in the estate had it not been for the fact that the debtor, in fact, asserted a claim, a counterclaim against a claim that was being made by an outsider to the estate. It's not too hard to distinguish Stern. But I am saying, other than Stern, I don't even think Stern, Let's go back to Henry II. Maybe you have so many you'd have to send them on a list, but maybe not.
8: I, you can look at all of the cases cited in both sides' brief. I think the rule is best stated in the Taubel-Scott-Kitzmiller, which is one word, uh, case uh, that says when there is a bona fide claim of adverse possession or, uh, excuse me, of ownership by a third party, that can't be extinguished except through a plenary proceeding. And that's the exact same situation you're talking about, Your Honor. There's no difference. And there's decades of that law. And that law and that rule uh, was never disputed. Uh, and so going back now to the trust uh, proposition,
2: I think it's important to make clear that wellness is a certain Who is the third party? You said it's just, it's no different. No different than um, a third party coming in and saying, that's my vote. Who is the third party here? The third there is only the trustee. This is supposed to be his mother's trust. And his sister is supposed to be the beneficiary. So who is the third party?
8: So two, There's a, well, three. There's the trust, but importantly, during her lifetime, Soad Watar was the owner, the only owner of the beneficial interest in the trust assets. So she's the third party. So to the extent the bankruptcy court wants to decide for itself. I thought she was dead. When the uh, bankruptcy was commenced, she was still alive, and she had the absence of revocable living trust. She has the absolute right to use all of those assets to revoke the trust. That's, they're her assets. If she had declared bankruptcy, those assets would have been in her estate. There's did she un- say,
2: if she, when she was alive, did she say, uh, bankruptcy court, wait a minute, this belongs to me?
8: She, uh, she was in Syria, I think, at, I'm not sure at what point, but um, the point is the trust itself was an existing document and, and was an existing entity. And I want to be clear about something. Wellness doesn't dispute that. I mean, Exhibit 13 to Sharif's deposition was the trust amendment in 1996. It was an existing trust. And, in fact, their first primary argument, which pervades their reply brief, depends on the proposition that the trust was a real entity, because what they're saying is a version of what you were saying, Justice Sotomayor, which is that he had possession because he was the trustee of the trust. The possession only exists because he's the trustee of a trust. The trust assets aren't listed in his name. If they're not in the trust, there's no tenable theory that he is the, on the face of the assets, that they start in the uh, estate. They're gonna have to be gotten somehow. So their theory is, well, he's the trustee of a trust and therefore he has sufficient possession. And our answer to that is simple. Not one case ever in the history of Western law that anybody has found says that trust assets go into the personal bankruptcy estate of a trustee if and when uh, the trustee declares bankruptcy this court said the opposite in hardensburg it said the opposite in whiting pools in saying that when uh, you ha- have only bare legal title which is at most the only thing a trustee has only bare legal title goes in and no other beneficial interests go into the estate so then there's a second question a second argument which is that well because in 2002, not one year, Justice Breyer, but seven years before the bankruptcy, we have discovered these documents that suggest that he was treating the trust as trustee was treating the trust assets. Well, but as but their own. in the case
4: you dis- just decided, did the court say who decides the question of whether there's bare legal
3: title?
8: Uh, those you, 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 you said the case very clear. Only
4: bare legal title goes nothing. But who? Did it, did it go on to say that the bankruptcy court cannot decide who has the bare, whether you have only bare legal title? But
8: those cases were not about that proposition. This this is about this this threshold proposition that because he's the trustee of the trust and in possession of bare legal title, that's all we need to know. That's their oh, No, are you?
4: So, so where you were brought me so far is uh, these cases say what they say is you have to, you can't, just grab it. You have to proceed under Section 23 and have a proceeding. But the the a, a proceeding, uh, some kind of a proceeding. I don't know exactly what that kind is. You probably do. But that doesn't mean the trustee doesn't get it. I mean, it's the trustee who litigates it out. It's the trustee who decides. But I don't know what it's Section 23. In, proceeding in, in the
8: older cases, yeah. the rule that would apply, uh, Justice Kennedy, would be. Um, the Talbert-Scott-Kitzmiller rule, you had to have a plenary proceeding to go get it. A plenary proceeding? A plenary where, is, where plenary does that proceeding. take place? That, that would have been, it's, it's sort of the equivalent now, the parties are treating, I think, not incorrectly as the equivalent now of an Article III proceeding. This would have to be But it didn't happen. take
4: place before the bankruptcy judge?
8: Uh, no, well, the, at the, most of these cases at the time, remember, the district court was the bankruptcy court, and the question was whether it's the exercise of summary jurisdiction versus a plenary article 3
4: proceeding.
8: Oh, I see the problem. Um, a, a plenary proceeding. Mm-hmm. Now it would be an adversary proceeding that would have to be determined finally by the the federal court. So, but I want to be, get to the second point because it's an important one. Wellness doesn't just rest on the proposition that just because of the trust he's a trustee uh the trust assets are part of the estate which I think is completely unsupportable They go on to say because 7 years earlier as trustee he treated them as uh, the trust assets as his own. Um, therefore we should disregard the trust that argument i think as i think justice sotomayor pointed out is functionally indistinguishable from a fraudulent transfer uh claim because they're saying based on his alleged misuse of trust assets at some point in the now distant past we should treat them as part of the estate we should disregard the trust which is just like a fraudulent transfer which says because of something the debtor did before transferring the assets we should disregard the transfer and treat them as part of the estate. In that respect, uh, it's, uh, in, it's indistinguishable, uh, and it is in, in that respect uh, in the same way to so augment the estate.
2: Just to clarify the record, I asked the question whether they were or weren't.
8: Okay. Uh, fair enough, and, and, and I, I will try to answer it, which is I think they are in that respect um, indistinguishable. And then if you follow from what the uh, all of the lower courts have said, that a f- uh, fraudulent transfer action is a stern claim.
2: Uh well we've which, said think, that too.
8: Um I well, it's, him. It, it, it held that it's an artic- basically an article 3 claim in grand finance Sierra. Um, so I think for all of these reasons um, it is uh uh quite clear um, that the action to bring these uh claims into the estate um, is a common law action seeking to augment the estate uh with somebody else's property. Property that Soad water owned during her life uh and that Um, Ragda Sharifa uh, owned upon So give
2: me examples Um, The suggested rule that I had For the Solicitor General Which he would like the broader one But if at the time you have legal title To or in physical possession Of something Then it's not a stern claim Not an Article 3 claim Because that is the quintessential um, Question that bankruptcy judges decide are the things that you possess either by title or by constructive hold or by right. holding
8: i think there's two problems with that analysis first is that all the trustee has is bare legal title as a matter of law does not have any property interest which is what the current bankruptcy code focuses on what are the debtor's interests in property and it's the the trustee of a trust does not have any interest beneficial or legal interest in the assets. It's only bare legal title. So to get more interest as part of the estate, you have to have some common law way to do that, some claim for doing that, and a classic claim is an alter ego claim, if that's what you think, because of something the trustee did, uh, then — But, but you, you say that's
5: always going to be the case, that you need an Article Three proceeding whenever the bankruptcy trustee determines that something belongs to the debtor and is in the bankruptcy estate — and some other private party says, no, it belongs to me. That always has to be litigated in an Article three court.
8: I, I don't think this court needs to decide that. That's not quite the question here, because the property interests from Let the state are outside but the estate. What, what, but is I, I do that what
5: you're arguing? I, I,
8: I, I would not be surprised if the, this court were to hold one day that if a third party has a claim to property, comes into court and says, that's my, that's my house. I know the debtor says it is, that says it's his, and the trustee thinks it is. But that's my house. That that person is entitled to an Article Three adjudication right, for his that's own rights. Exactly, that's
4: exactly that's right, because it's interesting. I, I, I mean, I, I've read the page you have there now with the cases, and I, I see you can. The distinction will drive you towards that, not a hundred percent, because there'll be some instances of colorable. Uh, of colorable title and so forth, not 100 percent, but 99 percent. Items 6 through 10 go to a different court. But what the constitutional question is the deepest one to me is we do have a constitutional provision specifically giving to Congress the authority to create a uniform system of bankruptcy courts which have served our economy well, I think. That's what I read. makes us richer. And on the other hand, we do have the question, as you point out, that this is determining a title where there are two people under state law contesting it. And so which prevails? And until I think Stern, it would have been Congress's delegation, maybe. Maybe. And what, what is the strongest argument for not giving weight? These are sort of like administrative agencies defining, you know, deciding things that never had anybody done before. What's the strongest argument? No, don't do it. It might gut the bankruptcy court, but don't do it. Or maybe you want to say it won't gut. I, I
8: don't, that's what, that was my answer was I don't think it will gut the bankruptcy court. We think this is just a straightforward application of where, where we already are with, where we already are with Stern. Yeah, yeah, but it's, I, I agree forward. with
4: you to this extent. It's either Stern marches forward or it's, I'd say, steps in place. <laughs>
8: well, and I don't think, I, I don't think we're pushing Stern forward. I do think we're just applying Stern. But I also want to address your point about uniform uh, bankruptcy code. I think the fact that this Court has long said and understood and the lower courts have accepted that bankruptcy law takes state law and property rights is defined by state law as they find them, that's all we're talking about here. To the extent there is a state law property dispute between a third party and the debtor slash bankruptcy trust trustee, uh, that that doesn't change the, the uniformity uh, of the bankruptcy code. And, and
5: I, I suppose the constitutional provision uh, authorizing Congress to establish a uniform law of bankruptcy does not authorize Congress to establish bankruptcy courts. That can decide questions which would
8: normally be decided by Article Three courts. That's clearly right. You, yeah. you can establish bankruptcy law, but it's going to be an Article three question, the extent yeah. to which the bankruptcy courts can exercise judicial power. I just will answer one more point on um, Justice Sotomayor's uh, question. Um, I had two responses. The second one was that physical possession is not a great test, um, as this case shows. Uh, Sharif, as trustee, didn't physically possess anything. If anybody did, it was the banks where the trust assets were. So you can't think about it in terms of physical possession. Well, let's,
4: let's let me receive with this question one one more step. That every day of the week administrative agencies change state law. Every day of the week they change state law even involving property. And in such a case, the question is whether has this administrative agency under authority of Congress changed state law affecting people's property rights in a way that deprives them of due process of law? Have they gotten fair procedure? And so is a possible answer to your problem. If the procedures of the bankruptcy court are fair, when they litigate these questions of property right, the fact that they do affect state law and take property among persons switching it is not forbidden by the Constitution, where it indeed is authorized as part of a uniform system of bankruptcy law.
8: I think due process uh, viewed that way is not sufficient. I think, again, this Court answered that question uh, in stern. There wasn't a claim that there wouldn't, wasn't going to be due process for the disposition of the of the property rights there. Um, the problem was that the bankruptcy court was exercising the judicial power of the United States in entering a final judgment. Uh, and if I can turn to that argument, um, I will. Um, Stern itself is based on the, a structural separation of powers' concerns that private rights of this kind um, are exclusively committed to uh, by the Constitution to Article 3. It's about the exercise of judicial power, which entails uh, the implementation and enforcement of judgments of the United States that are entitled to full faith and credit by courts both in the United States and elsewhere pursuant to treaties. They are precedential. They can be law. They are law of the case in what can be very complicated cases that stretch around different courts uh, and go on for years. Uh,
2: that's By the way, is, are the arguments you're raising now any different as applied to magistrate judges? If we rule in your favor in this case, are we calling into question our ex- our acceptance of magistrate judge positions?
8: Well, a couple of points. First of all, with respect to magistrate judges, it's only with respect to um, final adjudications. Uh, magistrate judges could so still. So your answer
2: yes, because you can do, on express consent, you can do reports and recommendations.
8: As as to final adjudications of private rights matters, magistrate judges could still do something, uh, could still litigate and resolve uh, public rights, uh, whatever those kinds of uh, rights and matters are. Um, but I, I do think it would be difficult uh, after this case um, to say that the, that a magistrate can exercise judicial power uh, of the United States to enter a final judgment. Um, based solely on consent. I think this Court answered that question in Shore, effectively. Sure would have been an easy case, an incredibly easy case, if consent alone were enough. Because that was an issue in Shore, and the parties there did consent. But the Court didn't stop with that one sentence, the parties consented, that's all we need to know. The Court went on to do an elaborate analysis of the structural uh, concerns involved and why there were no structural concerns um, such that, the consent was sufficient. And when you boil it all down, basically what Shore said, which is what I think the Court recognized in Stern, um, was that the structural concerns uh, exist when you're talking about the adjudication of a private
2: court. I agree, but we didn't say that you couldn't consent in Shore.
8: I understand that. I'm just saying it would have been a very easy case if consent were enough. And the Court, nevertheless, uh, went on to say, consent is enough here because we're talking well, about consent's enough for
2: arbitration, rights. and there you, you give up.
8: I understand that. And arbitration is fundamentally different. Arbitration is not the exercise of the judicial power of the United States. An arbitrator doesn't issue a judgment. It's not entitled to full faith and credit. Uh, it's a fundamentally different kind of uh, exercise of authority. Well, but he issues something authority. which has to be enforced by a court,
6: except in very extraordinary circumstances. You know, there's much less supervision over the arbitration system than there is over a typical bankruptcy court.
8: Right, but uh, but the — Decision by the parties to go to an arbitrator, which, by the way, is their own decision. What arbitrator they choose is their own choice. The arbitrator is not uh, controlled. The salary of the arbitrator is not controlled by Congress. The tenure of the arbitrator is not controlled by Congress. Uh, and when the, FFA, the, well, in, in the in FAA, very little FAA,
6: all those things make it worse. You know that this is a proceeding that's totally divorced from any kind of control by anybody. And yet, federal courts under the Arbitration Act simply have to rubber
8: stamp it and say it's
6: valid, except in extremely unusual
8: circumstances. But that's pursuant to Congress's Article I power to say here's a type of contract that we're going to say is enforceable under a particular situation. That's all arbitration no. is. This is just, just contract, contract law, isn't it? I mean, they're contract. just enforcing the party's contracts. Right. And well, that parties hey, this, that, that, this
6: is the party's yeah. contract. It's the. I mean, the entire question here is that the parties are consenting to go to bankruptcy court. And the question is, will that consent be sufficient in the same way that it is in the arbitration system? I understand,
8: but it adds the element that what you're consenting to, by hypothesis, is the exercise of judicial power by the entry of a judgment that will be given full faith and credit, um, the entry of a judgment by an entity. No, subject because that's to what
2: happens in arbitration. You're agreeing to the entry of a judgment of an award. Perhaps not even, because you don't even put that into the contract. Congress is saying we're going to do it anyway.
8: What I'm saying is you're not, you're not consenting to the exercise of the judi- judicial power, to the dilution of the Article Three court's authority well, issue documents that, that are precedential. Please, I'm sorry. Well, that, that's all I was going to say.
6: I, you know, I understand that formalism matters in many contexts, but the fact that the Arbitrator himself doesn't issue the judgment, and instead you have to take it across the street and the Federal Court has to issue the judgment. Basically, on the arbitrator's say-so, again, seems to me, th- I mean, the arbitrator case seems to me much more threatening to the integrity of the Federal judicial system than a system of bankruptcy courts which are, uh, uh, from the very beginning all
8: the way through, supervised by by district courts. Well, I, I mean, the the – Key difference, though, I think, is that, as I said, bankruptcy courts are exercising judicial power; arbitrators aren't. And then, when the, the district court in an arbitra- arbitration proceeding, all the district court is doing is enforcing a judgment. Uh, excuse me, enforcing an arbitration award, a contractual choice pursuant to a congressional judgment that says, "Here are the rules, the decision rule, for enforcing this particular type of contract." That's an Article I issue. It's within Congress's Article I power to constrain to establish the decision rule that the um, the party the the entity exercising judicial power will apply. In this situation, the party exercising the entity exercising the judicial power is a non-article 3 court. It's as if you said you changed the FAA and added another paragraph to say and arbitrators awards are exercises of their, their final judgments of the United States entitled to full faith and credit uh subject to appellate review um, by the um, uh, by appellate
2: courts. Could you I spend the moment just talking about the forfeited argument on appeal? On the the uh, uh, the, 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 the argument that uh, consent can be presumed from your forfeiture of the argument on appeal. And
8: I, I'm glad you put it that way, uh, Your Honor, because I think there, there are different points. The, the law clearly requires consent, and I think everybody agrees it requires knowing and voluntary consent, that so you have to have at least that. The rule, which we think is applicable, and agree with the American College of Bankrupt- Bankruptcy, that the rules writers uh, and this Court in uh, implementing the rule required express consent, uh, and I don't think there's a credible argument here that there was express consent, and I think this Court ought to adopt uh, express consent as the requirement and hold that there was not cons- express consent here precisely for the constitutional avoidance reasons that Justice Scalia mentioned earlier to avoid getting into the whole discussion we just had. Because if there's insufficient consent here, then we don't need to decide the circumstances under which uh, consent is But is uh, forfeiture
3: quite different from consent? It's not a species of consent. It's different from consent.
8: And I'm, I'm sorry, I delayed getting to uh, Justice Sotomayor's uh, question. The, pro- the reason there's no forfeiture here, among the reasons, is that this was a problem of, of appellate jurisdiction. There was no appellate jurisdiction here because there was no final judgment in the bankruptcy court. If our first argument is right, then the bankruptcy court lacked authority to issue a final judgment, So when we went up to appeal, quote-unquote, in the the district court, there was no – it wasn't permissible for that court to exercise appellate jurisdiction. Do you think a final judgment
3: has to be a valid final judgment in order for there to be an appeal?
8: I think It can be be final and it can be invalid. Well, it's not a question of being a a defect. I think the problem here is there is an absolute lack of any authority to enter a final judgment. There wasn't something from which the district court had any authority to exercise appellate jurisdiction. That was – the problem, it wasn't I mean,
3: If the, the court appeal. enters a judgment against you, and you say that court never had jurisdiction to enter that judgment, you can't take an appeal, because there wasn't a final judgment, because the court below lacked jurisdiction. That's the argument?
8: Well, the, no, the argument would be, if on, at any point on appeal, I can raise the problem that the court to which I'm appealing lacks appellate jurisdiction, lacks jurisdiction to, uh, resolve the case. That's, that's the kind of non-waivable problem. And something that cannot be waived also can't be forfeited, uh, and and so that's the reason um, that there's no forfeiture problem here. Um, beyond that, it's quite clear that um, uh, Mr. Sharif made every effort to preserve the issue to the extent he became aware of it. It was only six weeks after Stern was decided that he filed his opening brief. Did not cite cite Stern. That's true. But only a month or two later, um, his sister Ragda Sharif files a motion to uh, withdraw the reference. Uh, and then he immediately, essentially, his lawyer, realized what's happened. As soon as he's aware of the Stern argument, as soon as the Seventh Circuit issues its decision in Ortiz actually applying Stern, then he promptly raises this issue. He's not sandbagging. There's no gamesmanship here. As soon as it's clear that he understands that his consent was required before what happened to him could permissibly happen, he demonstrated that he did not consent to the exercise uh, of that uh, of that ju- of that jurisdiction. Now of course our primary submission is um, the bankruptcy court never had that jurisdiction uh and to uh, we think that's a correct argument but to avoid that argument uh we think the simpler approach for this court uh is to say that express consent was required it wasn't satisfied or that if implied consent was sufficient to apply what this court applied in the royal case um, uh in in finding uh implied consent uh, which clearly was uh, not applicable here. In roll, the court found implied consent only because, quote, the litigant or counsel was, made, was uh, made aware of the need for consent, didn't happen here, and the right to refuse it also didn't happen here, and still voluntarily apply, appeared to try the case. Further, the court emphasized in roll, the party later actually did consent in writing. That also didn't happen here. So none of the factors that um, created implied consent in Role were sufficient, uh, and uh, for that reason, we think um, uh, the Court should uh, affirm the judgment below.
0: Thank, Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Ms. Stagey, you have five minutes left.
1: In response to the test that Justice Sotomayor p- proposed about possession, that, in fact, under the historic cases, the uh, Tobel Scott Kitzmiller case, that's the easy situation, the situation we have here where the debtor has actual possession of the property. And we don't contend that Mr. Sharif had, a- had just legal fiction as a trustee possession. This was the house he lived in, the business he ran, his own retirement accounts, and his own bank accounts. These were assets he was enjoying while trying to take advantage of the bankruptcy system, having not, in coincidentally, left an Article three court where he was litigating and where the Article three judge had held him in contempt and thrown him in jail several times. So he made a choice to go to bankruptcy court. He had actual possession of these assets, and that, under the historic precedent, has always been the easy case for the bankruptcy judge to decide. Um, That case goes the other way, but that's because the litigant was trying to bring a preference action. What was happening in that case is the sheriff had seized some property, and the argument was he had done it within what was then a four-month preference period, and they were really trying to bring a preference case under the constructive actual possession. That's different than a situation with the debtor that has actual possession of the property, And so when you look at these cases, whenever it's the debtor who has possession going back to the historic English law, the courts have always allowed the bankruptcy referee or judge to make that determination. Um, With respect to the um, cases that were discussed, the Whiting Pools and the uh, State Bank of Hardensburg case, neither of those cases actually involved trustees. Whiting Pools was decided shortly after this Court decided Northern Pipeline. Northern Pipeline was cited in that case, and that's a case where the bankruptcy judge's judgment ordering the Internal Revenue Service to return property back to the Chapter 11 debtor's estate because it belonged there, subject to their rights as a secured creditor, the Court upheld that. So I don't think that stands for the proposition that bankruptcy judges don't have the authority to decide disputes about where property should come into the estate. Um, with respect to the issue of consent, yes, this does have an impact. You know, our, our argument is very much based upon the fact that the Magistrate Act has been held, um, upheld in Roel and Peretz and Gonzalez. There is authority in the Fifth Circuit. Six of the judges in the the Fifth Circuit have issued a dissent in a bankruptcy case saying that they see no basis to allow the magistrate system to exist, given that the Fifth Circuit has held that 157C2 consent is unconstitutional. So you do have a circumstance where the courts are, the lower courts anyway, are seeing the two systems as the same, and they are the same because the Article Three Judiciary has control over the bankruptcy process at every step it refers the cases to the bankruptcy judges it can take them away anyone who ever has a problem with the bankruptcy judge can always seek a motion to withdraw the reference and it's the district court judge who decides that there's also macro control over the system in the sense that bankruptcy judges are appointed by the article three courts they can be removed for cause by the article three courts And for all of the reasons that the courts of appeals that address this issue unanimously across the board and upheld the magistrate system, all of that rationale in those cases applies to the bankruptcy system.
4: Tobel Scott. Yes. Well, well, he says that they say that where possession was assertedly held not for the bankrupt, but for others prior to bankruptcy, the party in possession was not subject to summary judgment be divested only the plenary suit under Section 23. By that, I take it he means it's this, this case. Uh, it's true that he said he was trustee. Uh, his mother says, no, no, it is my property or whatever, and, and uh, therefore, that fits within that case, and, therefore, this is uh, one of the ones that went to a full court and mm-hmm. didn't go to the uh, uh, bankruptcy judge. He says, that's this case. What's your response to that?
1: But that's not this case, because the debtor has possession. And Tabel Scott sets out five circumstances in which we have plenary or summary jurisdiction under that statute. And on the easy side of the line, on the constitutional side, postern, is debtor's possession of that property. You can't make a claim like we have here. And Wellness never conceded that the trust was valid. That was the dispute before the court. You can't let a debtor... Well, you can, but you can't, it would be very difficult for the system if a debtor were allowed to say, "I don't really own it; I'm using it." Well, I the have money here is in it, his bank that.
4: account. That's the point.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, you, you would have a circumstance where the bankruptcy judge would have no authority. And Mueller v. Nugent decided back in 1902 recognized that and said you would have courts that would have no ability to supervise the system that they're charged with supervising. Thank, Thank you. you,
0: counsel. Case is submitted.